This is the Best Song Podcast, an oral history of the first 90 years of the Academy Award for Best Original Song. The Best Song Podcast was made possible by the generous support of the following. Paulus Edukas, Terry Freerks, Tina Fry, Jeff Glazer, Mark Hollingsworth, Douglas Meacham, Mark Smith, The Sokolov Family, Colin Stokes, Adrian Quinn Washington, and Ben Watson. Let's settle in now for this episode with the host of the Best Song Podcast, Jeff Cummings. Welcome back for another episode of the Best Song Podcast. So I had some good news for you to start off the last episode. World War II was over and the songwriters who received the most votes in the Best Song category would finally receive the gold statuette known as the Oscar instead of a measly plaque. So that was good news. But I have great news to kick off this episode. From here on, the nomination lists for the Academy Award for Best Song will be limited to five nominees. That means the competition for Best Song is going to get a lot more competitive, bringing us back to the early years of the award when only three songs were nominated. And after dealing with 14 songs in 1945, it feels so good to have it whittled down to a third of the size. I'm sure the music branch was happy to reduce the workload that came with so many nominations. The year 1946 was significant also because it was the year that many actors who would become Oscar nominees were born. Diane Keaton, Brenda Blethyn, Dolly Parton, Pete Postlethwaite, Diane Wiest, Talia Shire, Cher, Sylvester Stallone, Bruce Davison, Leslie Ann Warren, Tommy Lee Jones, Sally Field, Patty Duke, and Susan Sarandon were just a few names that made 1946 a great year for the future of filmmaking. And that doesn't include three very influential directors born in 1946, Oliver Stone, David Lynch, and Steven Spielberg. Of course, no one knew in 1946 that these 17 babies would become celebrities, so things just went along as normal for just about everyone, except where the rules for the Academy Awards were concerned. So the general rules for the 19th Academy Awards limited all categories to five nominees and and, and included original song, as I said. And this is the first year that all categories will be voted on by just the members of the Academy. It appears that last year's test phase with allowing just the Academy members to vote on the Best Song Award was a success. And I don't think anyone had an issue with It Might As Well Be Spring taking home the Oscar. Starting with the songs written for films released in 1946, the 13th year of the original Song Award, the Academy is now responsible for compiling the list of eligible songs and sending that list to the Executive Committee of the Music Branch for approval. I could imagine a bunch of interns spent a lot of time getting the information from each studio, which probably took months to do. And once the nomination ballots go out, the Music Branch members rank their top 10 favorite songs, and the five that rank the highest among all voters get the nominations. This procedure is called preferential voting, and it will be a part of the nominations process for many years. It was also used to select the nominees in almost every other category, including acting and best picture. When I talk about songs that fail to get Oscar nominations, think about the preferential voting process, and it might be safe to say that this process is what kept them off the official nominations list. I'm going to take some time here to explain the preferential nomination process. 
Let's say that in 1946, there were 100 members of the Academy's music branch, which is a close estimate. Each of those members received a list of all the eligible songs and were asked to rank their favorite songs, with their top choice going on the number one line and their tenth favorite going on the tenth line. Though it likely did not happen, let's assume that all 100 members of the music branch submitted their top ten song choices. With five nominees, that meant a song would become an automatic nominee if 21 ballots listed it as the number one choice. I got 21 from dividing 100, the number of voters, by 5, the number of nomination slots, and adding 1. The accountants in charge of counting the ballots will sort them into stacks according to the songs listed in the number one position on each ballot. Then, if one or more songs received 21 or more votes, they automatically become nominees, and those ballots are removed. Since it's impossible for all five songs to receive the magic number of 21, since that would add up to 105 votes cast, there will be a second round of tabulating. Of the remaining ballots, the ones containing the song with the lowest number of number one votes are redistributed according to the choice in the number two spot. Then it's likely another song gets to the magic number of 21 and becomes a nominee. If there aren't five nominees yet, the stack that has the fewest ballots in it is redistributed based on the number two or number three choices. That continues until five songs reach that magic number. In this case, it's 21, but it depends on the number of ballots received. So keep this process in mind as we move forward in this podcast. The results of nomination voting is never made public, so we don't know whether a song received slightly less than the magic number, but didn't have enough support as a second or third choice to get to that magic number in later rounds. That is likely how many songs that were popular at the time failed to earn an Oscar nomination. Don't worry, we're not going to run through all the eligible songs that appeared on the nominations ballot. I might highlight some of those songs that missed out on the official list of five, but the focus of the show is really to learn more about the songs and songwriters who did get that coveted Oscar nomination. There's a little bit of notable history about the five songs in 1946 because it's the first time all the nominated songs come from movies filmed in color. Let's go in alphabetical order for this episode and start with the final Oscar nomination for Jerome Kern, who passed away in November 1945. He had teamed with Oscar Hammerstein II for one last movie musical called Centennial Summer, and he earned a posthumous nomination for the song All Through the Day. The film was 20th Century Fox's attempt to capitalize on the success that MGM had with Meet Me in St. Louis. The MGM film with Judy Garland centered around the 1904 World's Fair. The Fox film starring Gene Crane centered around the 1876 World's Fair. The film came out in August 1946, 10 months after Kern's death. Fox's marketing ploy was to highlight Kern's involvement, with the film marketed as Jerome Kern's Centennial Summer. Irving Berlin's name was famous enough to be showcased in big letters on a movie poster, but I don't know if Kern had the same public notoriety as Berlin. Fox tried anyway, but I'm not sure it worked. The movie made just $3 million, about $3 million less than Meet Me in St. Louis did during its initial theatrical run. The weird plot surrounding two sets of sisters fighting over men 
probably didn't appeal to movie audiences, and the lack of a Judy Garland-type headliner wasn't helping matters either. The project had come to Kern in 1943, and he was able to see it through the filming process. His plan was to travel to New York City to begin working on the Broadway score to Annie Get Your Gun with Dorothy Fields, but he died of a cerebral hemorrhage on November 11, 1945. As a side note, Irving Berlin was asked to write songs in Kern's place, essentially pushing Fields aside since Berlin could handle music and lyrics. The producers who made this decision to hire Berlin for Annie Get Your Gun were Richard Rodgers and Oscar Hammerstein II. Kern's death hit Hammerstein hard, as he had just finished working with Kern on the songs for Centennial Summer, and knew Kern was the best choice as composer for Annie Get Your Gun. In March 1946, Hammerstein won the Best Song Oscar with Richard Rodgers and was ready to return to the Academy Awards ceremony to hopefully accept Kern's third Oscar for songwriting. Hammerstein was one of three lyricists who worked with Kern on the song score for Centennial Summer, including Oscar winners Yip Harburg and Leo Robin. Because the Academy's music branch was responsible for picking the five nominees, it wasn't a sure thing that All Through the Day would be the film's nominee. Heck, there was no stipulation that only one song from each film had to be nominated. But Hammerstein was the lyricist that got the nomination for All Through the Day. We get a very, very brief introduction to the song near the beginning of the film when almost engaged lovers Ben and Edith are sitting on Edith's porch. Ben is strumming a banjo singing the song, but he is interrupted by loud chatter in the house. That brief moment sets up the song as Ben and Edith's song, which is very important when we get to the full performance later at a dance during the Centennial Exposition. Edith has fallen for Philippe, a Frenchman, despite the near engagement to Ben and despite her sister's Julia's desire to woo Philippe. To get back at Edith, Julia tricks Ben into falling for her to make Edith jealous. This brings all four of them to the dance hall, where Richard Lewis, billed as the voice that thrills, sings the song with slides of romantic paintings shown on a screen behind him. At the end of the song, Lewis invites everyone to sing along, and the lyrics show up on the screen for everyone in the dance hall to read, and for those in the movie audience as well to sing along. Ladies and gentlemen, on with the magic. <laughs> I sit alone in the golden daylight But all I see is a silver sky For in my fancy I sweep away light And keep my image of the sky day I wish away the time 
until the time when I'm here with you. Don't pause the sun, I run to meet you. The evening mist melts away. Dawn smiles the moon, and soon your lips recall the kiss I dreamed of. It's a very lush love song, with one of Kern's best melodies in a movie full of some of his best work. The only person who is doing his own singing is Larry Stevens, the actor playing Richard Lewis. The other actors in the scene have their song performances dubbed by others, which again, is not uncommon, but is very different from what took place in Meet Me St. Louis. You won't find anyone singing for Judy Garland in her movies. Though Larry Stevens sang the film version, he didn't get to make a commercial record of it. Margaret Whiting and Frank Sinatra recorded versions of it in February and March of 1946. Then Bing Crosby snatched it up and sang it on the Kraft Music Hall radio show in April 1946, four months before the film premiere. But Bing didn't record this song, so Sinatra was the only one who took it to the top ten of the Billboard charts in 1946. About the night I dream about the night here with you all through the day I wish away the time until the time when I'm Down falls the sun I run to meet you The evening mist melts away Down smiles the moon 
And soon your lips recall The kiss I dreamed of All through the day sun I run to meet you the evening mist melts away down smiles the moon and soon your lips recall The kiss I dreamed of all through the Because he did so well with All Through the Day, the Fox Music Department let Sinatra record an unused song from Centennial Summer called Two Hearts Are Better Than One. Frank Sinatra's only film appearance in 1946 had a major Jerome Kern connection. Sinatra appeared as himself in the film Tribute to Kern called Till the Clouds Roll By. It was released in December 1946, almost a year after Kern's death, and has many of MGM's best singers, including Judy Garland performing Kern's best songs. The movie was a much bigger success than Centennial Summer, earning $6 million. The next nominated song also comes from a biographical film about people in the music business. And like Centennial Summer, it was made by 20th Century Fox. This marks the first time a studio received two Oscar nominations for best song in one year, which wasn't allowed in previous years, but it's remarkable that the first time it became possible, one studio could manage it. Fox produced and distributed a movie about the real-life Dolly Sisters, two Hungarian-born singers who had a quick rise to stardom in the early 1900s. Betty Grable and June Haver played the sisters, with John Payne starring as Grable's love interest. Payne is a songwriter who helps the singers achieve their stardom while falling in love with and marrying Grable's Jenny. One of the two songs that Payne's character Harry writes and performs in the movie is the nominated tune, I Can't Begin to Tell You, written for the film by Mac Gordon and James Monaco. Payne first performs it in rehearsal for a show in Elmira, a city in upstate New York, while the sisters look on. He calls the song a simple ballad, but asks it to be performed more upbeat in a vaudeville style. can't begin to tell you how much you mean to me. My world would end if ever we were through. I can't begin to tell you how happy I would be if I 
could speak my mind like others do. I make such pretty speeches whenever we're apart. But when you're near, the words I choose refuse to leave my heart. So take the sweetest phrases the world has ever known and make believe I've said them all to you. it light and gay. Pick it up in the treble like this, in the shottish tempo. I make such pretty speeches whenever we're apart. But when you're near the words I choose refuse to leave my heart Don't take the sweetest praises the world has ever known and make you believe I've said them all to Harry enlists in World War I, and after receiving a letter from Harry while she is performing in London, Jenny takes to the dance floor with the Duke as the music for I Can't Begin to Tell You plays. Jenny, ecstatic that Harry is coming home, sings some of the lyrics. Because Jenny chooses her career over Harry at the end of the war, the two divorce. Jenny is so upset by the decision that she gets into a car accident. When she has recovered, she and her sister return to New York for a special performance. Harry is also performing this night, and this is where I Can't Begin to Tell You gets another reprise. Harry begins to sing while Jenny listens and longs for a reconciliation. She joins him on stage followed by her sister as the three close out the film together. I can't begin to tell you how much you mean to me. My world would end if ever we were through. I can't begin to tell you Speak my mind like others do. I'll be right back, darling. For keeps. Whenever we're apart, but when you're near, 
sweetest phrases the world has ever known. The song has a wonderful melody by Monaco, who ended a successful collaboration with Johnny Burke when Monaco's contract with Paramount ended in 1942. That collaboration had him writing some top songs for Bing Crosby, and now he had John Payne singing his melodies. Not really a bad option. The other songs in the Dolly Sisters come from the era in which the movie is set, including an offensive blackface song and the other love song from the movie, I'm Always Chasing Rainbows, which was written by Harry Carroll and Joseph McCarthy in 1917 for a Broadway show starring the Dolly Sisters. The Dolly Sisters movie got its world premiere in Chicago in October 1945 and a healthy run in New York in November. So, how did the song get nominated for an Academy Award with other 1946 releases? The awards rules state that a film is eligible after it opens in Los Angeles for one week, and the Dolly Sisters didn't make it out west until late winter 1946. Unfortunately, James Monaco wasn't around to enjoy the Los Angeles premiere, dying of a heart attack at age 60 on October 16, 1945. Perhaps his sudden death swayed the members of the music branch to give him the posthumous nomination, just as they did for Jerome Kern. Our next nominated song does not come from a big splashy musical, but rather an expensive western made by Universal Pictures called Canyon Passage. Hoagie Carmichael wrote the music and lyrics for three of the four songs in the film, but it's the fourth one that he wrote with lyricist Jack Brooks that got the nomination. It's called Old Buttermilk Sky, and it's performed by Carmichael, who plays shopkeeper High Linnet. This marks the second time a songwriter performs his nominated song in the film, the first being Gene Autry back in 1941. Canyon Passage was Carmichael's third movie and his first opportunity to put an original song on film. If you have seen the movie The Best Years of Our Lives, and I strongly suggest that you do, Carmichael helps the character played by Harold Russell play piano without hands. By 1945, Hoagie Carmichael's name might not have been as well known as Irving Berlin, but he had written some of the great song standards by the time he was 30. Georgia On My Mind, which has now become that state's official song, has music by Carmichael. Stardust, Up a Lazy River, and Heart and Soul, all written in the 1930s by Carmichael with assistance from lyricist friends, have become some of the most recorded songs ever, and they were also very big hits at the time. Jack Brooks had been writing lyrics for low-budget musicals under contract with Universal Pictures since he made the move from England to Hollywood in the late 1930s. That helps to explain why he was brought in to help Carmichael with the lyrics for one song in Canyon Passage. Old Buttermilk Sky is only a minute long, and it closes out the very dramatic film. By the end, some people are dead, and the town of Jacksonville, Oregon has been torched by Indians, seeking revenge when a white man killed an Indian woman. The two main characters, Lucy and Logan, 
decide to go to San Francisco to start a new life. Hi asks to tag along, and he sets off to get ready for the trip by singing Old Buttermilk Sky, specifically asking the sky to observe that he's hitching up his old mule to go on a trip to see the girl he loves. Hi has never spoken of being in love in the film, so the lyrics don't fully match, but Hi does have a mule, and that's what he's supposedly riding to San Francisco from Oregon. It's a fun little honky-tonk cowboy song, something that Carmichael had little trouble writing since he made modest hits out of cowboy songs when he first arrived at Tin Pan Alley in New York. Oh, buttermilk sky, can't you see my little donkey and me? We're as happy as a Christmas tree, heading for the one I love. I'm going to harbor the question, that question, do you, darling, do you do? It'll be easy, so easy, if I can only bank on you, oh, buttermilk sky. I'm telling you why, now you know. Keep it in mind tonight, keep brushing those clouds from sight. Oh, buttermilk sky, don't you tell me when I need you most. Hang a moon above her hitching post, hitch me to the one I Hoagie Carmichael was a big star on the radio when Canyon Passage was in movie theaters, which might have helped the music branch be more aware of him as a songwriter and a performer. It's likely he performed the song on his radio show often, with added lyrics that weren't heard in the film. Old buttermilk sky, I'm a-keeping my eye peeled on you. What's a good word tonight? Are you gonna be mellow tonight? Oh, buttermilk sky, can't you see my little donkey and me? We're as happy as a Christmas tree, heading for the one I love. I'm gonna pop her the question, that question. Do you, darling, do you do? It'll be easy, so easy, if I can only bank on you, oh, buttermilk sky. I'm telling you why, now you know. Keep it in mind tonight. Keep a brushing those clouds from sight. Oh, buttermilk sky, don't you feel me when I'm needing you most? Hang a moon above her hitching post. Hitch me to the one I love. Papa, the question, that question, do you, darling, do you do? It'll be easy, so easy, if I can only bank on you, oh, buttermilk sky. I'm telling you why, now you know, keep it in mind tonight, keep brushing those clouds from sight. Oh, buttermilk sky, don't you fail me when I'm needing you more. Hang a moon above her hitching post Hitch me to the one I love You can if you try Don't tell me no lie 
will you be mellow and bright tonight, oh, buttermilk sky? Carmichael didn't do well with his commercial recording of Old Buttermilk Sky, but he owed a lot to Kay Kaiser, the comedic bandleader, who took his recording of the song all the way to the top of the Billboard sales charts in 1946. Kaiser and his orchestra, with Michael Douglas on vocal, no, not the Oscar-winning son of Kirk Douglas, changed the arrangement of the song into a big band version, making it a little more urban and likely more accessible to the music buyers in the big cities. Buttermilk sky, I'm keeping my eye peeled on you. What's the good word tonight? Are you gonna be mellow tonight? Oh, buttermilk sky, can't you see my little donkey and me? We're as happy as a Christmas tree, heading for the one I love. I'm gonna pop her the question, that question. It'll be easy, so easy, if I can only bank on you, old buttermilk sky. I'm telling you why, now you know, keep it in mind tonight. Keep brushing those clouds from sight. Old buttermilk sky, don't feel me when I'm needing you most. Hang a moon above her hitching post, hitch me to the one I love. from side old buttermilk sky feel me when I'm needing you most hang a moon above her hitching post hitch me to the one I love buttermilk sky you can if you try don't tell me no lie will you be mellow and bright tonight old buttermilk We're back to musicals for our fourth nominated song, and it's yet another biographical film. Judy Garland introduces another hit song in a splashy musical, her fourth time introducing an Academy Award-nominated song. This one is called On the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe from the movie The Harvey Girls. 
The movie is about a group of women who come to a small town to open a saloon and liven up the town. The song puts the MGM musical talent on display, both in front of and behind the camera. The song lasts for more than eight minutes, running from the time the titular train arrives in Arizona until its departure for California. And it shows why it's good that the song performers don't get the nomination for the Oscar along with the songwriters. The entire town of Sandrock, as well as all the train occupants, take part in this song. About a hundred in total. Benny Carter, who moonlit as a casting agent in addition to his acting skills, starts the song in a saloon when everyone hears the whistle of the approaching train. Other townspeople and some of the train passengers take up the song, even some who don't really carry the tune well. It follows with a middle section that gives us more of a backstory of some of the Harvey girls and where they came from. Judy Garland finished the song, marveling at the sights of her new home and the train that brought her there. Do you hear that whistle down the line? I figure that it's engine number 49. She's the only one that'll sound that way on the Atchison, Topeka, and the Santa Fe. See the old smoke rising round the bend I reckon that you know she's going to meet a friend Folks around these parts get the time all day From the edge of sun to the and the Santa Fe Here she comes! Yeah. Hey Jim, you better get the rig The passengers is pretty big And they'll all want lifts to Brown's Hotel Cause lots of them been traveling for quite a spell On the way to California On the Atchison, Topeka On the Atchison, Topeka Chesapeake, Ohio, and the ASL. But I make my run and I make my pay on the Atchison, Topeka, and the Santa Fe. Go on back, young folks, along these aisles. The land you must have walked about a million miles. It's a treat to be on your feet all day on the Atchison, Topeka, and the Santa Fe. Here we go. Around and round our heads are spinning, new adventures are beginning. 
What a length of Calico is Papacy and Calico to really put a cowboy on the bus. Cowboy. Cowboy. Kibosh. Kibosh. It's enough to make a fella want to wash your face and hands. People, you'll never be afraid of soap. Cotton shoes and powdered chalk and fancy smells and baby talk. It's awful what a gal it's do to do. Even so, we aim to say we love to honor and oh, baby, are there any more at home like you? Wahoo! Hand me my hair, go man, my sticker. Gonna get bruised up and I'll pick up. Put on the dog and I'll sit and pick up. Mr. Harvey, Mr. Harvey, Fred Harvey knows exactly how to pick up. We come from Dubuque, Iowa, that's where the tall, tall, tall corn grows. I was a lily and Russell of Cherryville, Kansas, but they never gave me a chance. I finished high school in Providence, Rhode Island, and Providence, Rhode Island is where I learned to dance. Oh, I'm from Chillicothe, Ohio. My middle name's Hiawathe, Ohio. I'm gonna get the gold and them thar hills, so I said goodbye, oh, Ohio. We were school marms from Grand Rapids, Mish. But reading, writing, arithmetic were not our dish. I was born in Paris, I was raised in Paris, went to school in Paris where I met a boy. I was married in Paris, almost buried in Paris, but I finally left Paris, Paris, Illinois. So this is the wild and woolly way. Give me my chaps and my checkers, Give me a gun and a holster for my hip. Bang, bang! Yip, yip. What a lovely trip. I'm feeling so fresh and alive And I'm so glad to arrive It's all so grand It's easy to see You don't need a palace To feel like Alice In in Ohio where I come from I've done a lot of dreaming and I've traveled some but I never thought I'd see the day when I ever took a ride on the Santa Fe Wanna take a ride on the Santa Fe I would lean across my wheel and hear the whistle echoing across the hill Then I'd watch the lights Till they fade away On the Atchison, Topeka and the Santa Fe What a thrill What a great, big, wonderful thrill I guess I 
Just as he did with Accentuate the Positive the year before, Johnny Mercer found inspiration from this song when he least expected it. In a 1976 interview, he said he was riding on a Union-specific train around 1942, while one from the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe line went by. He kept the thought about the name of the train in the back of his mind until he was hired to write songs for the Harvey Girls. He brought up the line to Harry Warren, who created one of his best melodies, raking right up there with the music he wrote for his Oscar-winning song, Lullaby of Broadway. It's instantly catchy and toe-tapping. The other ten songs that Warren wrote for the movie with Johnny Mercer have a tough time topping this big production number. That middle section regarding the brief but lyrically complex introductions to some of the Harvey girls is steeped in some little-known controversy. Because he was concerned about Mercer's tendency to work slowly with creating lyrics, Producer Arthur Freed didn't even ask Mercer to write lyrics for the middle section. According to the book The Songs of Hollywood, MGM bigwig Roger Edens worked with vocal arranger Kay Thompson to create those verses. So if it felt like that section was very different from the rest of the song, this is the answer. Mercer wasn't on set for the filming of the big production number, so when he saw the finished scene almost a year later, he protested and asked for it to be removed. Everybody's going to think I wrote that junk, Mercer is reported as saying. I'm surprised that Roger Edens didn't push for his name and Kay Thompson's to be included as official lyricists alongside Johnny Mercer since they wrote a significant portion of the song. Perhaps he did, and Mercer threatened to sue. Since that middle section is a hefty chunk of the song, they certainly had the right to be properly credited. Mercer earned his ninth Oscar nomination for Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe, and his first with Warren since the two wrote Jeepers Creepers way back in 1938. Mercer had been busy starting Capitol Records for the past four years, and once the business had a solid footing in the music industry, he got back to writing song lyrics again. He had a big hit with the recording of Accentuate the Positive the year before, and when MGM realized the potential of Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe after filming the big scene, they licensed it out to several record companies while the movie was still being filmed. Mercer took it for Capitol Records, enhancing the jazzy feel of the melody, but, not surprisingly, removing that middle section that he didn't write, as well as the end section that Judy Garland sang. His recording spent a solid 19 weeks on the Billboard sales charts, including seven weeks at number one.
that whistle down the line I figure that it's engine number 49 She's the only one that'll sound that way On the Atchison, Topeka and the Santa Fe See the old smoke rising round the bend I reckon that she knows she's gonna meet a friend Folks around these parts get the time of day From the Atchison, Topeka and the Santa Fe Here she comes Ooh, hey Jim, you better get the rig She's got a list of passengers that's pretty big And they'll all want lifts to Brown's Hotel Cause lots of them been traveling for quite a spell All the way from Philadelphia On the Atchison, Topeka and the Santa Fe All aboard All Let her rip, let her rip, Mr. Engineer. Gotta go, gotta go far away from here. While the man at the fire shovels on the coal, stick your head out the cab, watch the drivers roll. See the towns and the roads go whizzing by. Fairly well, Laramie, Albuquerque, hi, yes, sirree. Here we are going all the way. The song had a bit of history on the Billboard charts, with four versions all ranking in the top 20 at the same time. Not only was Mercer's recording on its way to selling more than a million copies in summer 1945, Bing Crosby and Tommy Dorsey had hits with their versions as well that summer. Judy Garland recorded a version that was not as popular but kept the song in the public's ear through fall 1945. Though the song was popular a full six months before the movie made its premiere, it continued to hold sway all the way to the release of the Names of Songs nominated for the Oscar. Though Bing Crosby was busy singing other people's songs in 1946, he did introduce one Oscar-nominated song that year called You Keep Coming Back Like a Song for his film Blue Skies. The song was pretty low on the notable aspects of the movie, which was being billed as Fred Astaire's final film performance and the return to new movie songs by Irving Berlin since writing White Christmas four years earlier. It was also a film that had been conceived by director Mark Sandrich, who gave Astaire his big break in the mid-1930s. Sandrich died in 1945, before filming began, 
of a heart attack. Irving Berlin focused on a major tour of his stage show, This is the Army, traveling to various military posts from 1942 to 1945 to supervise production. Once he was done, he devoted his time to bringing his story of a club owner and dancer in love with the same woman to the screen. That became the film Blue Skies, which has about 10 previously written Irving Berlin songs mixed in with four new ones. You Keep Coming Back Like a Song is the highlight of the new songs, though the older ones, such as Puttin' on the Ritz and Blue Skies, stand out more. As for You Keep Coming Back Like a Song, Crosby sings it at one of his new nightclubs during the off-again portion of the on-again, off-again relationship he has with Joan Caulfield. As he sings the song, Caulfield has run back to him wanting to rekindle the relationship, and the song is performed at the perfect time. Crosby's Johnny is singing about the memories of her that keep coming back, like the melody of a good song or the scent of a nice perfume. He stops singing near the end when he recognizes her in the audience, runs to her, and kisses her. You keep coming back like a song, a song that keeps saying, Remember. sweet used to be that was once you and me keeps coming back like an old melody the perfume of roses in May Returns to my room in December. From out of the past, where forgotten things belong, you keep coming back. Like a song From out of the past Johnny gets to sing the song again at the end of the film, which takes place many years later. But as he did in the first version, he doesn't get to finish it because Caulfield has returned to make the love affair on again. She interrupts him by singing Blue Skies. They kiss and walk off presumably happy, until they're off again, I suppose. Naturally, Bing Crosby recorded this song for Decca Records, but it wasn't his version that was the biggest seller. Dinah Shore took the song all the way to number five on the Billboard charts, while Crosby's version was unable to crack the top ten. This was the first time in many years that a Bing Crosby record didn't top the Billboard charts, or at least get into the top ten. 
but he still reigned as the country's most loved singer and was still the top actor in Hollywood. Blue Skies and his fourth road picture with Bob Hope, Road to Utopia, combined to make more than $10 million for Paramount. One of the other original songs in Blue Skies is another song Crosby sings to a child. Running Around in Circles is a sweet lullaby that he sings to his young daughter when visiting her one evening. What's cute about it is that it uses animals to make a point, like swinging on a star, but the melody is not as catchy, which is probably why the Academy's music branch preferred the Crosby love song over the Crosby lullaby. If you think that Berlin's nominated song is not up to par with his previous hits, it might be that his mind was focused on the other side of the country, working on a stage show about the legendary Annie Oakley. As I mentioned earlier, when Jerome Kern died in 1945, producers Richard Rodgers and Oscar Hammerstein II asked Irving Berlin to step in and write songs for a show they were producing. The result was the mega-hit Annie Get Your Gun, a show that ran for 1,147 performances beginning in May 1946, just five months before Blue Skies began playing in movie theaters. Annie Get Your Gun was a success. Blue Skies was a success. Irving Berlin was back on top, at a time when many thought White Christmas was going to be his peak. And with his sixth Oscar nomination for Best Song, there was a good chance the Academy couldn't deny Berlin a second Academy Award. So those five songs present some tight competition for the Best Original Song Award at the 19th Academy Awards. But as we're going to find out in many years to come, a lot of great songs didn't make the list. One of them came from the 20th Century Fox musical Three Little Girls in Blue. The film itself did moderately well at the box office, and that might explain why the song I want to highlight didn't get much notice then. The song is You Make Me Feel So Young, which became a major hit for Frank Sinatra in the 1950s. In the film, one of the title girls sings it to the man she has fallen in love with, and they imagine themselves dancing in a dream sequence to the music by Joseph Myro. Mac Gordon, who already was nominated that year for writing I Can't Begin to Tell You, could have gotten nomination number two if the song had been released commercially to give it some life beyond the film. When you smile, I'm, I'm a millionaire. And you too? I'm as happy as a kid with a brand new bike. You affect me that way too, Mike. When you're near me, you... 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 You make me feel so young. You make me feel so spring has sprung. And every time I see you grin, I'm such a happy in. The moment that you speak, I want to go play hide and seek. I want to go and bounce the moon just like a toy balloon. You and I are just like a couple of tots running across a meadow, picking up lots of forget me not. You make me feel so young You make me feel there are songs to be sung Bells to be rung And a wonderful fling to be flung And even when I'm old and gray I'm gonna feel the way I do
And there's one other song that we look back on now and wonder how it missed an Oscar nomination. It's the song Put the Blame on Mame, which Rita Hayworth performs in Gilda. The song is about a woman whose fiery beauty apparently caused the San Francisco earthquake, the Chicago fire, and New York's 1888 blizzard. The way Rita Hayworth, or rather her singing double Anita Ellis, sings the song, you feel the femme fatale nature of the song. in San Francisco back in 1906. They said that old mother nature was up to her old tricks. That's the story that went around, but here's the real down. Put the blame on Maine, boy. Put the blame on Maine. One night she started to shim and shake That brought on the Frisco quake So you can put the blame on Maine, boy Put the blame on Maine They once had a shooting up in the Klondike When they got damn a groove Folks were putting the blame on went around, but here's the real lowdown, put the blame on me, boy, put the blame on me. If Put the Blame on Mame had been an Oscar nominee, it would have been the first for composer Alan Roberts and lyricist Doris Fisher. The two began their songwriter collaboration in 1944, just after they met. They were signed to Columbia Records, and their first film was Gilda, where they had a hit record with Put the Blame on Maine. Lois Fisher married in 1947 and retired from songwriting. Alan Roberts kept writing for films and stage until his death in 1966. Long after their deaths, the American Film Institute picked Put the Blame on Maine as one of the top 100 movie songs from the first 100 years. If last year's Oscars was a chance for Hollywood to show off its post-war glitz and glamour, the awards show celebrating 1946 in movies was going to be bigger. Literally. The ceremony moved from the relatively large Grauman's Chinese Theater to the massively big Shrine Auditorium down the street. The Academy planned to fill the 6,700 seats with not just Academy members and nominees, but with members of the public willing to shell out the money. As it turns out, the public wasn't as keen on sitting with the rich and famous of Hollywood, and the Academy gave away lots of tickets to military veterans. That might have been a foreshadowing of things to come. The best picture frontrunner was The Best Years of Our Lives, a look at soldiers returning to home life after World War II. The movie won seven Oscars, including Best Picture, and the biggest ovation of the night went to Harold Russell, who got an honorary Oscar for his portrayal of a veteran who lost his hands in the war, and then won the Best Supporting Actor Oscar. The day before the ceremony, 
the list of performers for the five nominated songs was in flux. Bing Crosby bowed out, probably because he wasn't asked to sing You Keep Coming Back Like a Song, but rather, I Can't Begin to Tell You. Frank Sinatra followed suit, refusing to sing You Keep Coming Back Like a Song. Show producer Mervyn Leroy, who had produced The Wizard of Oz, asked Judy Garland to sing on the Atchison, Topeka, and the Santa Fe, but she confessed to stage fright and withdrew at the last hour. Dinah Shore had already been asked to sing all through the day and agreed to take Judy's song as well. Dick Hames performed once, and Andy Russell was put in Sinatra's place. Hoagie Carmichael was the only person to perform the nominated song in the film and the Oscars ceremony that year, singing Old Buttermilk Sky. Carmichael told the famous gossip columnist Hedda Hopper that he had never performed in front of such a large crowd, and to combat his nerves, he wrote the lyrics to the song on cardboard just in case he forgot them. Luckily, he didn't forget them. The songs were performed at the beginning of the ceremony, before Academy President Gene Herschelt gave his opening speech. There was no intermission this year, and the original song award was 11th on the program. Van Johnson, who was giving Bing Crosby a run for his money as one of the big Hollywood stars, thanks to his boy-next-door looks, presented the Best Song Award. Never mind that Johnson wasn't a singer. Actor Rex Harrison wasn't a film editor, yet he was there to present the Best Film Editing Award. After eight previous losses, Johnny Mercer could now call himself an Oscar winner, with On the Atchison, Topeka, and the Santa Fe voted as the Best Song of 1946. Harry Warren was now the first three-time Oscar-winning songwriter. He broke his tie of two song Oscars with Oscar Hammerstein and with Jerome Kern, who many believe would win based on sentiment alone. But sometimes you can't beat the heat of a number one record. Harry Warren didn't attend the ceremony to accept his record-breaking award, mostly because he was not happy with his lyricist. Mercer's recording of On the Atchison, Topeka, and the Santa Fe did not list Warren on the label, which infuriated Harry Warren. The result was the end of a brief reunion of their collaboration, and the two didn't speak to each other for nearly a decade, according to Mercer's biography. Johnny Mercer also did not attend the Academy Awards to get his first Oscar, reportedly still angry that Arthur Freed had secretly put in new lyrics without his approval. Mind you, Mercer didn't refuse the Oscar. He just didn't want to accept it publicly, then have to make a speech and thank people he didn't want to thank. Another possibility over Mercer not coming to the Oscars was the fact that he had lost eight times before and didn't want to show up and see someone else holding the Oscar. All in all, it was a good year for movie music. The Best Years of Our Lives and The Jolson Story took the score awards, and with the whittling down of the music nominations to five, we see much better quality in the lists. That's not to say that will be the case every year moving forward, but the Academy had the right sense to not allow just about every movie song to be a nominee just because it existed. What will we see in next year's crop of nominees? I'm just as excited to find out as you are. So let's end this episode here and get ready for episode 15, which will detail the five nominees for Best Original Song of 1947. Thanks for singing along with me on this episode, and I look forward to doing again with you next time. The Best Song Podcast is not authorized or endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law.